Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, entrepreneur and journalist Margaret Heffernan takes a fresh look at money and power. Thank you all very much. Thanks for inviting me here this evening. My relationship with the university has been a really tremendous treat for me, and the excellent colleagues that I've been privileged to work with, and some of the fantastic students I get to work with, some of whom obviously haven't had enough and have come for more tonight. Um, but I'm also really thrilled to be delivered the, the Gerald Walters lecture, not just because it's been given by so many incredibly distinguished people in the past. When I saw the list of lecturers, I felt deeply intimidated. But because it celebrates a man who cared passionately about drawing important and intelligent connections between society and learning. And at a time when higher education is such a critical catalyst in today's debates about who we are and where we're going, I think it's a real privilege to be inside that discussion. So I hope that what I have to say tonight will in some way contribute to it and provoke yet more debate. I'm sure it'll provoke debate. Some 20 years ago, a middle-aged physical chemist working for BP in Ohio asked herself a fantastic question. Carol Latham had observed the growth of the personal computing market from a distance, and being a thoughtful person, she asked herself a fantastic question. She thought, what's the gating factor here? If computers are destined to get more and more powerful and smaller, what might stop that? And the answer she came up with was heat. As computers do more and more processing, they get hotter and hotter, and if they get too hot, they stop. Heat, Latham, Latham reasoned, would stop the whole thing in its tracks. In personal computers, Internal combustion is not what you want. But being a physical chemist, she thought there had to be a solution, some kind of material that would take the heat away. So she went and talked about her idea to her bosses, who absolutely didn't want to know. But Latham did want to know. She thought this was her idea, and she really wanted to see it through. Recently divorced with three kids in college, she decided to rent out her big family house, move to an inner-city apartment, quite a bit of a risk in inner-city inner Cincinnati at the time, and fund her adventure on the difference. She didn't even attempt to get mainstream investment. What venture capitalist would invest in a divorced middle-aged chemist with no history, knowledge, or presence in the computing industry? She named her company Thermagon. It was a rather clunky pun. Therma, meaning heat, and gone, meaning gone. Like many entrepreneurs before, she labored in the wilderness for quite some time. She couldn't afford precision instruments to measure the exact performance of the new materials she was making, but she did have a sense that there was something like a 10x improvement over anything else out there. And then one day, the phone rang. And the man on the other end said he didn't know her, but he worked for Intel. And Intel was about to launch a new chip and the chip had a problem, and someone had said she might be able to help. It turned out the problem with the chip was it got really hot. He also said it was going to be quite a big deal. It was called the Pentium. Could she help? This is the kind of phone call that every entrepreneur dreams of. 
But this wasn't Silicon Valley. Thermogen was just a few people in an office block in downtown Cincinnati, funded on rent. Now she needed people, lots of people. Where was she going to find them? What Carol told me was that in, this is where the 18 years she'd spent as a homemaker really came in handy because during the time she was raising her kids, she did a lot of charity work. And she said, if you can manage volunteers, you can manage anybody. So instead of trying to, to hire a bunch of high-tech experts or chemistry PhDs, which she couldn't have afforded even if she could have found them, what she did instead is she opened the back door of her office and dragged in pretty much anybody she could find, mostly Latinos and Hispanics, most of them not having finished high school. They were willing enough to work, they just didn't have great literacy or great numeracy skills. Never mind, thought Latham, I phoned up the city's education department and said, if you send me the teachers, I'll provide the classroom and the time. Before long, the Thermagon offices hosted a fully staffed production facility, a full to bursting order book, and a classroom full of grown-ups learning on company time. There's a little bit of Carol Latham inside everybody's laptop today. Carol did what all entrepreneurs dream of. She changed the world. And yet what she, when she started, what was obvious about Carol was what she didn't have. She didn't have any money. She didn't have any power. And she didn't have any competition. By rights, if you believe what economists tell you, she shouldn't have had any motivation at all. And just look at what she did. I'd like to suggest to you tonight that what looked like Carol Latham's bad luck was in fact her good luck. That money and power and competition aren't quite what we think they are. And that we need to have a pretty serious rethink about how we use these sometimes infernal tools to motivate others and to motivate ourselves. Now, it's often said that people aren't motivated by money, that we're all really much more high-minded than that, and that as long as our basic needs are satisfied, we're really driven by much higher-order goals, like purpose. The truth, of course, is a little more complicated. In a 1953 experiment, when volunteers were asked to hang from monkey bars, pretty much everybody could do it for about 45 seconds. If you use positive reinforcement or hypnosis, you could extend that maybe to 75 seconds, but if you offered money, you could get it to 110 seconds. There are more than a few bosses who wouldn't mind paying for a 110% performance increase. Nor was this some weird anomaly of 1950s America. More recent studies have shown money can reduce physical pain. Students who submerged their hands in very hot water found that the pain subsided faster when they were counting money than when they were counting paper. <laughs> Further experiments show that if you ask students to remember a collection of pictures with price tags, it's the pictures with the higher price associated that are most readily recalled. There's a whole battery of experiments like this, but the conclusion is always the same. Money changes how we think. In a series of experiments carried out in 2007, participants got to play Monopoly, 
or were made to play at Monopoly, depending on your view of the game. Some came away with £3,000 of play money, some came away with £125, and some came away with none. Then they were taken across the lab to another room for further experiments, but on the way they encountered a woman who dropped a box of pencils on the floor. Of the three groups, which would prove the least helpful? The students who had made the most money in the game. In another version of the experiment, instead of helping with pencils, students were asked to help a student who seemed to be very confused by a task. The participants who had no money spent 120% more time with their colleague. Perhaps the experimenters thought we're testing helpfulness in too demanding a form. So they designed an experiment to do something easy and money-related to just donate to the student fund. But again, the pattern repeated itself. The participants who had made the least donated more. This isn't to say that the volunteers who had money uppermost in their minds were completely useless. Given a difficult or impossible task, they worked 48% longer before asking for help. They persevered, but they persevered alone. What the researchers concluded was that while money was great at motivating individual effort, it carried with it negative social side effects. In the conflict that we all experience between interest in ourselves and our concern for others, Money appears to motivate only interest in ourselves. It makes us feel self-sufficient. We don't need others. It's each man for himself. Let's take this out of the lab and into the real world. On one level, we know this is true. As long as I have money, I don't need other people. If I can pay a nanny, I don't have to ask my friends or my family to help me with childcare. We can all afford to drive our own cars, our own kids, to school in our own cars, as long as we can afford them. If I have a very great deal of money, I don't have to interact with people at all. You can take the example of Richard Fold, chief executive of Lehman Brothers, whose daily commute from Greenwich, Connecticut, saw him successively in a limousine alone, in a private plane alone, in another limousine alone, until he drew up before a private lift that stood waiting with its doors open to take him up to his office so that at no point in this journey did he ever have to speak to a single human being. Money changes how we think. And it changes the choices that we make. In a famous experiment, two communities in central Switzerland were asked if they'd accept having a nuclear waste facility in their community. More than half, 58%, said that they would. They weren't wild about nuclear waste. 40% said they thought it could cause a serious accident. But they understood it had to go somewhere, and their sense of a common social good overcame their individual reservations. Would they be more committed if they were paid to host the waste? The two economists conducting the study offered to pay, to pay a sum roughly equivalent to a month's income every year. But instead of increasing acceptance of the facility, support for it halved. You might have thought that given the chance to do the right thing and make money, support for the site would increase, but it didn't. It fell. 
And note, this wasn't just some quirky Swiss behavior. Uh, in Nevada and subsequent studies, exactly the same results emerged. Money interfered with social engagement. Finally, in a very well-known study, a fine is a price, my friend Yuri Genizi discovered that when an Israeli childcare center attempted to cure its parents of tardy pickups, the imposition of a fine didn't help. Rather than making parents more punctual, the fine made parents more frequently late. Even more important, and often overlooked in this study, when the child care center attempted to reverse the effect by eliminating the fines, they found they couldn't go back. Even when penalties were abandoned, parents no longer cared as much about being on time. What had started as a social contract between parents and teachers had been severed and it couldn't be repaired. Enough money and you can be late. Enough money, you can park on yellow lines. Enough money, you can buy your way into the Prime Minister's private dinner. Enough money, you can hunt endangered species and you can generate vast carbon emissions by a new face or by a new baby. Break the rules or write the rules. What all of these studies taken together point to is two important conclusions. First, Money has the potential to sever the social contract. And second, the motivation may work in ways similar to cognitive load. Just as there's a hard limit to how much we can focus on at one time, perhaps we can effectively be motivated only by one purpose at a time. When we care about people, we care less about money. And when we care about money, we care less about people. Our moral capacity may be limited the same way that our cognitive capacity is. When 563 risk managers undertook a study of the banking failure, these most hard-nosed enumerative analysts didn't think regulation or economic models were chiefly at fault, and they dismissed completely the idea that it had been caused by uh, global circumstances beyond their control. What they said was wrong was people's attitude to money. Pursuit of profits had displaced concern for people. Paying people more hadn't made them do a good job, it had acted as a catalyst to make them do a worse job. The problem with bonuses isn't just the profound inequality they produce, but the moral vacuum they create. A constitution for knaves may produce knaves, is how one economist described what happens when money becomes the motivator. A constitution for knaves may produce knaves. When money is the chief value, all the others might disappear. So that means we have to think hard before we start fining parents for their children's school truancy. A fine is a price, and it may be more likely to sever any sense of connection with a school then it's likely to create one. We should think hard before we think that the way to promote the pro-social behavior, which is marriage, will benefit from the anti-social incentive, which is money. If despite all the research that points us away from performance-related pay, 
we decide to pay more to teachers who make more effort who get better exam results, are we completely comfortable for contented teachers to infer that they don't need to try at all? Within the geopolitical security industry recently, a survey concluded that the United States program Rewards for Justice had apparently not quite been as successful as expected. Despite the huge rewards offered, the survey concluded, the program has had little luck capturing high-profile figures such as Mullah Omar and Ali Atwa, despite the $5 million rewards offered for them, the analysts wrote. One of the big assumptions behind the program is that everybody's for sale, and that if enough money is offered, all the suspects will be turned in. Yet it's clear that not everyone is for sale. How did we reach a place where we thought they were? Our problem may be framed as one of crowding out. The more we make decisions in terms only of cost, the less practiced we become at making decisions any other way. You could say our thinking becomes demoralized, that moral thinking is something we can't do because we don't do it. Those decisions are too hard, we have no process. So we walk past them, and in refusing to engage with the social, moral, and political issues at stake, we affirm the status quo of the marketplace. Money buys power, and often enough, power buys money, amplifying social difference and isolation. Let me put this into context. In 2005, BP experienced its worst ever industrial accident when a blowdown drum at the Texas City refinery <coughs> overflowed nearly a tanker's worth of, of gasoline, and it was set alight when a car backfired. Fifteen people died that day, and dozens were injured. But for years, BP had commissioned and received consultants' reports saying that the site was dangerous, that every day employees drove to the site, they wondered if that was the day they would die. The supervisor of the men who did die that day, a conscientious man named Dave Senko, had struggled to keep his men working there. It was so frightening. And since the accident, he's carried on his conscience the knowledge that they only stayed out of loyalty to him. How could the leaders of BP be so blind to the dangerous state this site was in? The lazy answer is to assume they were just bad people, but I don't think they were. The proliferation of industrial accidents, from Texas City to Deepwater Horizon, and the banking collapse and the phone hacking scandals at News Corporation <clears throat> suggest we can't explain everything by personality flaws. What was so problematic within BP, and many organizations like it, was the hierarchical power structure. Led by the handsome and charismatic John Brown, this was a company characterized by an imperial leadership style, which it behooved everywhere, it behooved everyone to agree with Brown and Brown's agenda. He didn't think very much about safety, so nobody else did. No one won applause for challenging him, so nobody did. But Brown isn't unusual. He sat atop a structure where he had vast powers of reward and no appetite or process for debate. And BP isn't special. 
Research into what's now identified as organizational silence suggests that fully 85% of executives have issues and concerns that they do not voice. That's a lot of silence. Too much, in fact, to be dismissed as just bad management. And although John Brown's corporate culture and hierarchy left him willfully blind to the dangers that his organization sustained, it's clear he wasn't the, fir the first, and at News Corporation, Rupert Murdoch won't be the last to fall victim to that hazard. Power isolates people who have it from people who don't. Shakespeare understood this when he treated us in King Lear to a knowing display of the degree to which the powerful are told and believe what they want to hear. In their subservience to their father, Goneril and Regan perform exactly as John Brown's lieutenants or Rupert Murdoch's executives, saying what was expected. And Lear is blinded to this is blind to the deceit around him. But as any good director knows, the, the point about Lear at the beginning of the play is that he isn't mad. What he is, is accustomed to power, encased in a bubble that seals off bad news, disables instinct, and buffers any challenge. Like the cave dwellers of Plato's parable, the, the powerful may see shadows of reality and feel comforted by them, protected from external realities. The rough gives way to the smooth in a frictionless ascent. In the real world, this gradual loss of social connectedness manifests itself in all kinds of ways. Those with power appraise information differently. If you give one group power to make decisions and another group power merely to recommend, they'll give different weightings to information. The salient difference is that the powerful participants are more likely to pay attention to information that confirms the status quo. In other words, having power seems to make powerful people less inclined to challenge stereotypes. Those with power also use language differently. The words and syntax that they use are much more optimistic and the powerful are more likely to think in very abstract terms. On one level, this kind of makes sense. With power, you're more likely to believe that you can control and fix things. But perhaps most striking is that when you combine this tendency with abstraction and optimism, what you get is certainty. The powerful are simply more likely to believe that they're right, even when they're wrong. Power structures matter, and the best leaders appreciate that power isn't just a privilege, it's a problem. They may create alternative structures specifically designed to challenge them. Many seek out those with the independence to do so. The University of Delft requires that all its PhD candidates have to set down five statements and defend them because the university wants to make sure that its scholars are confident and practiced at challenging authority. Others treat as a high priority the protection of dissidents in their appreciation that challenge makes them safer, not more vulnerable. 
In India, I'm told, it's impossible ever to be isolated from the discontinuities of life there. And it's an interesting thought that that exposure may give their business leaders an advantage. While we, in our veneration of individual leaders, from Jack Welch to John Brown, from Steve Jobs to Mark Zuckerberg, isolate them when we put them on pedestals. King Lear, of course, memorably finishes with Kent's rueful summation, the weight of this sad time we must obey, speak what we know, not what we ought to say. With his career finished at BP, Brown seemed to acknowledge this. In his otherwise bromidic memoirs, just one sentence stands out with tragic candor. I wish someone had challenged me and been brave enough to say we need to ask more disagreeable questions. But even that mild admission misses the point. This wasn't someone's job. But Brown was too far removed from the real world to see that the someone was him. Money and power both fracture the social contract, undermining our energetic engagement with one another. Money means we can buy our way out of relating to other people, and power isolates us from realities and discontinuities just when we need them most. But perhaps nothing so profoundly disintermediates social bonds as competition. Let's look first of all at the deliberate use of competition to drive performance. Forced rankings continue to be used in lots of corporations, GE, Pepsi, Intel, Cisco, both as a means of appraisal and to motivate employees. The way it works is simple. In any given department, every contributor is ranked by appraisals from their supervisors and their colleagues. The rankings are aggregated, the top 10% or 15% get bonuses and rewards. The bottom 10 to 15% get thrown out or put on notice. And the large cohort in the middle is left trapped between fear and hope. The practice acquired some notoriety because it was the predominant management tendency or process at Enron, where it was known familiarly as rank and yank. But make no mistake, it's still widely used in large and well-regarded corporations around the world. Getting employees to compete against one another is supposed to make them more productive. Yet experiments show that while this kind of head-to-head -head combat can inspire higher performance in really simple tasks, its implicit fear and intimidation makes creative work well-nigh impossible. Some organizations that recognize these drawbacks prefer to make business units compete. So it's customary in advertising firms, for example, to pit one team against another for internal pitches, and the winner of which gets to make the external pitch for new business. Team A versus Team B, the best team gets to pitch outside. So what's wrong with these internal contests? Well, in the, in the occasional one-off usage, maybe nothing. Maybe. But as a permanent means of running an organization, it's nothing short of disastrous because there is no value in sharing. If I have information I can't use but you can, why should I share? If I hold resources I don't need and you perhaps could use them, why should I give them to you? 
that I have no incentive to do so. From an economist's perspective, this means that internal competition must generate information gaps, tilting the playing field. From a human perspective, the dog-eat-dog form of competition aggressively militates against collaboration and against trust. Like money and power, competition interferes with our sense of interdependency and connectedness. Now, we may not care very much about advertising and who wins what tagline, but we probably do care about medicine and science and about discipline whose advance and development hinges critically on the ability freely to share and test knowledge. And here I'd like to break off for a second and acknowledge my husband, Lindsay Nicholson, because I learned so much about this from him. Watching his work in the area of autoimmunity, I've come to see firsthand how critical to scientific progress the free and public sharing of knowledge is. In many ways, science is the pioneer of pioneering. Modeling for the industries and technologies that have followed in its wake the crucial impact of knowledge sharing and the vital signposting that derives from the open exchange of data and inquiry. We may all be a little bit dazzled by the emergence of apparently new technologies like open source software development and social media, but the truth is that the value of true information that these newer industries demonstrate was modeled centuries ago by the creation of Gresham College and the Royal Society in the 17th century. Scientific learning grows as investigators ask questions and share findings. New data suggests avenues to explore or avenues best left alone. It's in sharing that science acquires its efficiency and its momentum. But as the competitive ethos of science becomes more pronounced, that efficiency is undone. I've talked to numerous scientists around the world whose hardest problem isn't the science. That's the fun part. What's hard is getting ambitious postdocs to work together. The science simply doesn't flow if there isn't sharing and questioning, a rich, inherently social exchange. But why should I help my competitor? There is, after all, only so much space in the journals. There are only so many grants. There's only so much funding, so little time. In the competition for these vital resources, I'm going to give some of mine away? Under intense competitive pressure, young scientists, eager to secure small amounts of funding or increasingly rare academic posts, feel the need to rush into print, to stake out territory, to log more citations than their competitors. As the competition heats up, the quality of the work suffers. Sometimes this is just thin work. But last year, the journal Nature reported that published retractions had increased tenfold over the past decade, while the number of papers had increased just 44%. And the higher retraction rates were from the higher impact journals. The scale of the problem is way too big to be explained away by individual failings. In some instances, the retractions are due to work that's just been rushed, it's sloppy, 
it's insufficiently checked, where there's no time for reflection. In other instances, the retractions revealed a rising rate of fraud. The case of the German physicist Jan Hendrik Schoen illustrates my point. Here was a young scientist in a hurry to make a big splash, which he did when he claimed to have produced transistors on a molecular scale. It was clear Schoen was very driven, competitive young man, eager to please, eager to please, and terrified of failing. His colleagues steered clear of the superstar, assuming he didn't want anybody to steal his thunder. Competitive scientific journals, eager for the latest scoop, didn't do much in the way of peer reviews. Organizations competing for funding and public applause were eager to keep Schoen, much more eager than to scrutinize or check his work. In the race for recognition, he was winning. What else was needed? The problem was all his data was made up. I've been working on a new book about competition for a little under a year now. And I'm not sure I understand entirely how it works, but I can tell you one thing, that hyper-competition for extrinsic reward creates the conditions in which fraud flourishes and cooperation fails. I've spent a lot of time, one way or another, with fraudsters. It's sad, but it's not uninteresting. And the story is almost always the same. There are a few fantasies, there are a few Madoffs, but for the most part, fraudsters start off as good people who want to do good work. And somewhere along the line, they panic. They fear they're losing the race, and they start looking for anything they can find to enhance their performance. For students, it may take the form of copying. One reason that universities around the world now depend on Turnitin software to scan for plagiarists. For scientists, it's faked, rushed, or manipulated data that produces such a shocking increase in retraction rates. For companies, it's misstated earnings. For some of our major banking institutions, it's been the creation of flawed financial instruments or the mis-selling of instruments and products to the wrong people and even, dare I say it, the wrong countries. All of this furious activity, driven by a frenzy to get to or stay at the top of the scoreboard, in citations, in revenue, in reputation, in league tables, in stature. And we're in an Olympic year in which we sincerely want to cheer and applaud our highest achieving athletes, but have to turn a blind eye to our knowledge that there is now not a single sport into which performance-enhancing drugs have not made serious incursions. And our dawning awareness that the biggest area of creativity in sport today is the development of genetic techniques for performance enhancement of a kind that will elude any known test. What's becoming clear is that competition for extrinsic rewards, money, power, status, has the capacity to generate behaviors that are antisocial, destructive of trust, and of collaboration. Student against student, school against school, department against department. We may think these contests excite higher levels of performance, 
until we look more closely and find demoralization among the many, tunnel vision among the few, and rising rates of fraud and game-fixing everywhere. And yet, what do we see around us? Competitions in every conceivable and sometimes inconceivable walks of life, often for money and for the status that promises power. Compete to get to the top, compete for money, compete for power. And then we wonder why we find it so hard to leverage the collective wisdom we so sorely need to address the biggest problems of our age. When we think to motivate our best minds by getting them to compete against one another, it's tantamount to thinking the best way to put the fire out is to douse it with petrol. I hope I've given you a little something to think about tonight. But I want to go back to where I started with Carol Latham because I think she points the way to a more optimistic framing of where we are and what we can do. Carol didn't have money, she didn't have power, and she didn't have competition to drive her. Yet look at her achievement. Carol wasn't a social entrepreneur and so far as the primary purpose of her business wasn't to solve a social problem. She was a capitalist businesswoman and her company did what business at its best can do. It contributed to society. It strengthened the pro-social motivations of a large number of people. Through her business, she did all of that. She did it largely unwittingly, but we now have the advantage of understanding what made her business so great, and her success challenges us. How do we use what we know about the detrimental impact of money and power and competition to forge instead institutions that wittingly enhance society, reinforce social connectedness, and develop human cooperation? Can we even begin to imagine the structures and education systems that might equip us better as collaborators? Can we begin to think about rewards that reinforce our social impulses and the desire to share? Do we know where the people and the ideas and the learning are that will help us do that? And when we find them, will we have the courage to abandon our old bad habits? Collectively, will we have the energy and drive to do what Carol Latham did? Learn to see a problem and then dare to solve it. Thank you.